Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about meaning-centered psychotherapy for cancer survivors with licensed clinical social workers Angela Kerala and Brian Jinn. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. So, you know, we all know about psychotherapy. Woody Allen taught us all about that. You sit there and you talk and you talk and talk and talk and you talk and you talk. Sometimes you get medicine uh, and it's great and uh, everyone likes to talk about themselves. So it's a really good business. Uh, what's meaning-centered psychotherapy? Less talk? Uh, it's meant to sort of elicit out what is most significant in our life, what is our purpose, what gives us ways of coping. Um, it is designed specifically for those who face this and suffer with cancer diagnosis. For the patient, not for the family. Actually, yep. <laughs> this curriculum has been adapted to be utilized with cancer caregivers, mm -hmm. uh, bereavement, palliative care, cancer survivors. Um, it's even been used with nurses in hospice care. So this is a modality that really can be utilized at any, actually, point in life. Gotcha. At any point in life, any of us could be thinking about purpose and meaning and what it means for us. It doesn't really necessarily mean going through cancer and cancer treatment for us to think about what brings meaning to our lives. Now, this particular um, psychotherapeutic model was developed by Dr. William Breitbart uh, and his colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And, um, you know, it's a fairly new psychotherapeutic uh, model um, that really is based on, it's rooted in helping patients identify purpose and meaning in their life to enhance their uh, spiritual well-being as well as their psychological well-being. And um, it is based on the work of Dr. Viktor Frankl who was a Holocaust survivor as well as a psychiatrist. And many of you might be familiar with the best-selling book, Man's Search for Meaning. And so Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl talks about how all of us as human beings uh, search for um, our existence and what that meaning, what meaning is in our existence. And that uh, all of us, even if we're being faced with suffering, have the ability to find meaning in our lives. And that by finding this meaning in our lives, it will decrease our suffering and increase our overall psychological well-being. And so based on this, um, it was the birth of meaning-centered psychotherapy. Is this different than basically existentialism? Oh. It's got existential tenets built into it. Now, Absolutely. I know I told you we can't use five-syllable words. <laughs> existentialism. Six syllables. I broke my rules. <laughs> Yeah, it, Go it, it please. Does. It, it, it does. It, um, so he, he also weaves in Irving Yolam into the practice, and Viktor Frankl has a lot of existential tenets built into it, you know, the freedom of, of will and that we, divine, we de define our own purpose in life. And it's built out of sort of existential 
dread, distress, existential guilt. Uh, these concepts have been, uh, you know, in part of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Heidegger and all those different. <laughs> in fact, a, a very famous quote that uh, Viktor Frankl uses in his book, as well as throughout the meaning-based um, psychotherapy curriculum, is he who has a why to live for can bear, can bear almost anyhow. And that's cool. I, I just should uh, disclose one personal story, which is that in my 10th grade English class in a independent school in the city of Chicago, very liberal, uh, we walk into the room and the quote from um, Macbeth, it has life is but a walking shadow. It's oh, that, the candle, a brief, brief. Yeah, yeah, that uh, yeah. one. I can't yes, think of how I, it starts. <laughs> uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow um, is on the board and we, we are told that our first unit is the negative view of life. And it was basically indoctrinating 10 10th graders into existentialism <laughs> and beyond. And you know what? I mean, it was very, very impactful for me mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that I understood it, actually. It was really pretty cool. It, it is. Shakespeare is like, um, he has, Hamlet is the first uh, individual who's sick from his consciousness. And that's like existentialism, overthinking, being aware of our mortality. Mm -hmm. What is the purpose of life? Which often is what cancer patients are faced with, right? Oh, Their here own we mortality. go back to cancer. <laughs> well, you know, you got, you know, I got to. That's why we're here, right? We're we're here to talk about that. You stole um, my line. <laughs> <laughs> it was planned. Yeah. Um, so, but also, according to Viktor Frankl, human beings create meaning from four different sources. Okay. okay. The historical source of meaning, attitudinal source of meaning, creative sources of meaning, and experiential sources of meaning. So these different types of sources of meaning are interwoven into the curriculum of meaning-centered psychotherapy. So can you elaborate a little bit on those four? Historical, would that be like out of your faith history or... For example? It's about your past, your present, and your future. So where we came from, the life that we're living right now, and the life that we will live in the future. Um, it's the spectrum. Uh, it's our values. It's our traditions, our spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. uh, our culture. Yeah, the example they use is from Man's Search for Meaning uh, when uh, Viktor Frankl is given a way out of Austria with his wife, but only his wife, and he's deliberating on this decision of whether or not he can go out and leave his parents behind. And so he is walking through the streets. He happens upon a piece of rock and stone, which he finds and has Hebrew on it. And he's walking with this and he brings it to his father, who's a Talmud scholar. And he goes, what is this? And he's like, it's honor thy father and mother. And from that decision, he could not leave his parents behind. Mm. And that's sort of a legacy, a tradition, a value of how we live our life and gives us purpose. Well, it's interesting because another part of the Jewish faith tradition is anything to save a life. And if if leaving meant saving their lives, I think his father might have argued you should go. But that's a whole different that's a, <laughs> that's a whole yeah. different question there. <laughs> okay, so I, I got so that's the historical. Right. So attitudinal really has to do with the attitude, the attitude that you choose to take towards your suffering when going through cancer and cancer treatment, towards um, your challenges and your limitations that you're faced with in life, that we all have that ability to choose 
our own attitude. Okay. Um, really turning tragedy into triumph is really attitudinal source of meaning. All right. And number three was? Creative. The right. creative sources of meaning. Our investment in life. What gives us joy? Where do we spend our time? It doesn't have to be just painting, but it could be, you know, your work. Every day you're going in and you're investing, you're passionate. Your volunteer it. work, yeah. your hobbies. Yeah. Um, Hosting radio shows. Hosting absolutely. Radio shows. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then the last is experiential sources of meaning. So really how we're connected to life through love, humor, and beauty. Our relationships, art, music, nature, travel, that has to do with our experiential sources of meaning. Seems connected to number three, but maybe you're thinking about it's on like a more extension. emotional level. Or, Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. That connected level, yeah. Like and, and being like a, an individual stopped and they were driving and they just saw how red the leaves were and just being in that moment and truly living. That's so. right. And everything is individual, mm-hmm. right? Something that's meaningful to me may not be meaningful to Brian or yourself, Dr. Gore. And meaningfulness really can be something very simple and mundane or something very large and extravagant. So like Brian said, the beautiful red fall colors outside or I my like caramel those. macchiato in the morning. That brings me mm-hmm. meaning, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like your your wedding or the birth of a child. Um, a again, you hadn't seen 20 years. And Absolutely. You start and Marcel Proust's Madeleine. Do you guys know about that? Yeah. So Marcel Proust, which I haven't read, I admit, is wrote like this eight volume memoir. Uh, remembrances of things past, and it starts out with the uh, smell of a baking Madeleine, the little French cookies. Mm. Um that uh, had particular meaning for him. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not trying to show off my little, <laughs> No, but you know. that's an excellent example, though, of a, of, a, of, a, of a cookie and, you know, the smells and how meaningful that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very zen. It's very in the moment. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's really just helping patients identify what brings meaning to them and what is meaningful and purposeful to them in the light of suffering from yeah. cancer. And it's really exceptional in bringing that to the forefront. It's just the way it's structured, the way it's 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 given to uh, individuals, it makes it very clear and accessible. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm, I'm totally getting this conceptually from you guys. Uh, I certainly understand, and I've thought a lot about this, honestly, I think really many people have. about the uh, about the existential nature is the way I would refer to it of a cancer diagnosis, particularly you know one that uh, is likely associated with end of life. Uh, and it's, of course, that's not limited to cancer. Many of us, you know, understand that at some point that that whatever process we're going through is going to be associated with end of life. Um, I'm interested in your uh, use of the word suffering. Which, which I would think that is something that we don't like to talk to cancer patients about. We kind of emphasize that that most cancer patients, you know, who get the appropriate care, hopefully are not suffering. So I'm just wondering about that. That kind of strikes me as like, ooh, isn't that kind of dangerous language to be using? Well, anytime we hit a limitation, we suffer. Uh, there's loss of identity. There's loss of function. There's loss of being able to go to work. So that suffering is present. We're just helping people process it and alleviate it. So it, it, it's something we don't want to shy away from. We want to delve in and help them through it. Yeah, and and um, I've adapted this curriculum um, to use with cancer survivors. And often with cancer survivorship, patients are faced with not only the fact that they had cancer, but also the impact cancer has had and may even still be having on their lives because of those late and long-term effects. And so that, again, brings about challenges and limitations that patients have to move forward in facing. 
Gotcha. So who is eligible for this, this therapy? There's, there's only two of you sitting here. Right? Well, we, we have yeah. a lot of other individuals who have gotten trained and some on the palliative right. care team, solid tumor. Yeah, so, so do you want to talk about uh, – Well, we, had, we have an advanced cancer um, meeting center group, um, which I believe Ed Schwartz and uh, Leslie Blatt run. Uh, so any patient with uh, stage three or four uh, that is feeling – like they want to have more purpose or struggling, you know, one of the concepts when we, we assess is if somebody has a desire to hasten for death or if they... Uh, t- um, a desire to hasten their death? Yeah, or, well, not suicidal or actively. No, but just thinking about their... Just, they like, just want like, to I give up. Be done with they want to give is, up. They're done. Yeah, and, and suffering is like the, what this really addresses if if we're suffering and we don't have purpose, we're in despair. And so that person would truly benefit from this intervention. Anybody would benefit from this intervention, but that was designed specifically to address those individuals that are lacking purpose while they're struggling. I know that when I have a guest on the show who's really impossible to draw anything out of, I'm in despair. <laughs> and I am suffering. And I want to terminate that interview as fast as I can. I'm not joking, okay? So hopefully <laughs> you, know you can who you utilize are. some of these interventions and skills to help you bring about meaning while you're doing this radio show. Um, but um, so, but also though too, there there is um, certain patients that would not be appropriate for this type of modality. So patients that you know maybe have uh, cognitive impairments that are psychotic, severe depression, who are who are suicidal, um, you know, uh, personality disorder. Those would be patients that would not benefit from this type of modality. Gotcha. Well, this is very fascinating, and I'm, like I say, totally engaged. That tells you probably more about me than anything else. But I'm hoping that our audiences as well, and right now, we have to take a short break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more about meaning-centered psychotherapy with Angela Karala and Brian Jin. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guests, Angela and Brian. Uh, We were talking before the break about patients uh, who may, uh, cancer patients who may be appropriate candidates for this type of intervention. How do they find you or find somebody like you? I mean, how, do they, how do they 
become aware of this? I mean, I wasn't aware of it until 15 minutes ago. They can just ask to be referred to their social worker with the cancer patients that they work with. Um, but all of us um, utilize these skills mm-hmm. in our work with patients. And how prevalent uh, would this be outside of Yale? Because many of our listeners uh, you know, may not be associated with Yale New Haven Hospital, and they may be very interested in finding out more about this for them for themselves. Well, there was an NCI grant that provided a lot of training and produced a lot of individuals. I, I, I think it's across the nation. In a, a international lot. as yeah, well. Yeah, it is. I mean, Brazil. is there a website or something where if you wanted to look up meaning-centered psychotherapy practitioners, one could find one? I don't know if there is that specifically yet because I actually reached out to the, the individuals who did training <laughs> to try to get someone in New York uh, that was a private individual. I don't know if – I think you can it, – it always helps to Google. You'll find a lot of information. <laughs> and you'll some probably, of it's good and some yeah. of it isn't. I mean, just Google <laughs> meaning-centered psychotherapy yeah, and you're going to find hundreds of research articles and, yes, yeah. um, on this modality. It's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does this work? Does it, is it a one-on-one therapy or is it a group therapy or yeah, can it be either? It started with – with a group. Uh, group is just special, you know, when people are helping each other and supporting each other. Uh, and then they developed uh, an individual component because they found uh, there was attrition in group. So uh, in that way, uh, it, you could have the continuity and complete uh, uh, an individual session of seven classes. And it's um, it really runs for seven to eight sessions, weekly sessions of 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've mentioned, it's curriculum-based. And so on a weekly basis, there's a topic that we're discussing. There's an um, kind of an experiential group exercise that you do together. And then there's some very small homework assignments. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like more than like – more like a class than like a classic Woody Allen psychotherapy yeah. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's more uh-huh. psychoeducational. It's definitely nature. psychoeducational, but it's always – it's also very in-depth and process-oriented. Um, in fact, just me personally going through the training, and I don't know if you can comment on this as well, you yourself go through the training. Sure. You yourself go are thinking the... about what brings purpose and meaning in your life. And so it was very impactful personally for me. Yeah. Questions that – we should all ask each mm-hmm. ourselves. And every time I, um, uh, you know, facilitate a group um, with my colleague Jessica Stein, um, same thing. Uh, it really has me thinking about what brings purpose and meaning to me in my life. Well, what happens after the seven or eight sessions to the participant? What do they do and what's the follow-up? So, so it purposely is designed to end, and that replicates life's limitations Ugh, and finiteness. I yes. hate that. It does. I, a lot of people – but, you know, the, the group – I mean, if you've got good facilitators in a good group, sometimes it could be the opposite. Like, thank God that one's over. <laughs> well, groups, you know, they struggle. They were like, can we have a refresher? Can we do this? And what we, we, we give it back to the groups. And on some groups meet – uh, um, like once a month, they'll go to a cafe and they'll connect or they'll go to a support group and they'll connect there. So it's it, the bonds that are there in the group cohesion are, are, are I would say, lifelong. They, 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 it's just impressive to I, see. I can honestly say that with the groups that I've facilitated, um, definitely friendships have mm-hmm. formed amongst the group members themselves where I know they carried on um, once the group concluded. And there's no rules against that. No, no mm-hmm. rules against that. Gotcha. Um, is there follow-up for these uh, participants? I mean, do you do surveys or how do you know? I mean, how do you know that it's been an effective 
intervention and how do you modify for future groups or So I can say we have not done any research here at Yale, but there has been a lot of research done. Mm -hmm. Um, Research shows that by patients participating in meaning-centered psychotherapy, that even up to six months afterwards, they show a decrease in depression, anxiety, um, a decrease in distress, as well as an increase or an improvement in their overall psychological well-being, quality of life, and um, just sense of meaning in life. Hmm. Well, that sounds pretty good. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so how then, um, how about this application to the survivors and the family and so on? Who gets, how does one identify a cancer survivor who might benefit from such a such a, a intervention. So um, I am uh, the social worker in the Yale Cancer Center Survivorship Clinic, and pretty regularly I meet with patients um, who say things to me like, I just don't know where to go from here. I don't know how to move forward. What does this all mean? Why did I even get cancer? I want to be part of something bigger than myself. My priorities have changed. Mm -hmm. I had a patient, several patients actually have said to me, this job that I've been in for decades is a meaningful. I just, I want to quit. I want to go back to school. I want to do something else. I want to volunteer. I had another patient one time who actually was contemplating changing the religious affiliation um, just based on going through cancer and cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. So it, it really is about purpose and meaning in life. Yeah, there's a level of self-actualization, you know, where people are finding who they really are and identifying what is most valuable to themselves mm-hmm. and and, and being true. Yeah, right. Being true to themselves. And we, and we know that cancer survivors themselves experience higher levels of anxiety, depression, um, as a result of going through cancer and cancer treatment, have significant levels of distress um, and impact on their quality of life. And so by them utilizing um, meaning-centered psychotherapy, it helps decrease some of those things. It's the unsought gifts of cancer. And I've had people say, you know, uh, before I had this diagnosis, I wouldn't have the courage to do what I did. To, mm-hmm. to advocate for myself, and, and people become more them. Yeah. And, and another very um, interesting aspect of meaning-centered psychotherapy is something called the Legacy Project. Um, and the Legacy Project is, um, maybe Brian, you could talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, the Legacy Project is is something tangible. It's it, it can be something tangible. It can be something, uh, you know, abstract as well. But it's, it's part of the curriculum where people come up with something they want to give back to their family, to their friends, and it can be wide open. I've had people do poems. I've had people create God boxes. I had one really special individual who said, my life is my legacy. It's a rippling effect, and she had a profound effect on everybody in the group with her courage. Uh, so, you know, I've had people make cookbooks, make walls, mosaics of their family photos, mm-hmm. but it's just something that transcends themselves. Mm-hmm. And Right, and and within the context of the cancer survivorship curriculum, rather than use the term legacy, um, we use the the term story. So life of the story that you were given, the story that you're living, and the story that you want to live. And then instead of the legacy project, it's called putting the me in meaning project. And so, so some of the things that uh, patients have done, um, somebody created a, a lending library at their local church parish. Um, another um, patient um, took all of his photographs and cataloged them. Um, somebody else wrote a memoir that he wanted to share with his children and grandchildren. So again, 
and even something like getting back into exercise and eating healthy the project or the it doesn't have to be large and it doesn't have to be extravagant it can be just very simple mm-hmm. just again something that brings meaning to you and helps you feel like you're living a purposeful life i have to imagine that there may be uh, participants who continue to have you know depressive symptoms or anxiety and and i assume that some of these people would benefit from a more uh, intense, uh, you know, mental health intervention, whether it be uh, through a medication route or psychodynamic psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever is appropriate for that. I mean, you don't see this as a like a be-all for these people to the exclusion of other no. conventional modalities, right? No, and I think absolutely not. Um, it's just an addition, you know, to these other modalities. And and I I know I can speak for Brian as well that when we identify patients that would benefit from additional um, psychotherapeutic modalities, we we encourage them, right. you know, to get the services and, and make resources. I mean, we can provide some of that too within our clinics. But if we identify a patient that needs more than what we can provide, we definitely. Um, make referrals to the community. Are any of your patients already plugged into, you know, more conventional, if you will, or, uh, you know, therapeutic relations somewhere else and then do this kind of in parallel? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, no, I I would imagine that would be beneficial for for some people. Yeah, very interesting. Um, What about word of mouth? Do you find, uh, you know, you you go into infusion areas in the hospital, you know, in the clinics, and, you know, some people develop these chatty relationships with people, you know, if they they go that way, you know. Do you find people like referring other people? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, And um, with the cancer survivorship group, um, really, in order to qualify for, for the group, we want you to pretty much be out of active treatment and in that cancer survivorship mode. Um, And then, um, you know, so I think sometimes what happens is patients hear about this and they want to participate, um, but they're still like in active chemotherapy or in active radiation. So I have like a running, um, you know, list of people that are on that waiting list. So once they get done with treatment, they can start the group. But you are also offering these interventions for people in active therapy, right? Yes. Yeah. But that's more on an individual basis then? or um, We have groups as well. You have groups is, as well. Yeah. Our entire cluster is always reaching out to each other to identify people who would be appropriate and would benefit. Okay. And, and what about for staff? When are we going to start doing it for staff? Do you know how many doctors have yeah. said that to me? <laughs> I don't know. How many? <laughs> A lot. A lot of my colleagues uh, in uh, the survivorship clinic as well as the breast center um, where, where I also work have said, wow, this would be wonderful. I'd love to do something like this for myself. Yeah. Um, what about reading? Is Are there any, uh, you know, kind of literature that you recommend to your the people that you're working with or people who might want to learn about this or, or kind of just sort of get into the, the field a little bit just, in, you know, um, education-wise? Is there any kind of lay level or – well, uh, you know, uh, Man's Search for Meaning is given to that, each that's the book. patient. Yeah, that's the one you want to go to. Um, there are textbooks. There are, uh, you know, uh, text on individual and group. They're still doing the training. So that's always available to professionals who want to go. and Right, but for the for just people. Just people. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning would probably be the, the key one. Is it a readable book or is it like it's heavy, heavy philosophy? Heavy. It, you... we, 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 we tell people, you know, sometimes in, in – 
in this group, you know, it can be traumatic to read that. Um, wow. And so we, we say go at your own pace. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the first part is his experience in the concentration camp. And then in the latter part is his uh, uh, theories on psychotherapy and logotherapy, which he developed uh, out of his experience. And, and I, also, I also say to patients, um, it, it's not a requirement to read the book. You know, to participate in this group, you don't have to read the book. Um, the the group, the meaning centered psychotherapy, was developed based on the works uh, of Viktor Frankl, but you don't have to. Well, maybe you guys should get together and write the the layperson's cancer experience book based on your experiences. Why not? Hey, I. I, I... <laughs> it seems like that. It seems like that would be useful because I'm sure that not everybody has access to this uh, modality of therapy all over the country, all over the world, necessarily. I mean, it sounds like it'd be great if if everyone did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure you have some capacity limitations as well, right? In terms of how many people you can you can intervene with at a time. Absolutely. And I would say a good-sized group is maybe six to eight Yeah, I was going to guess it couldn't be much bigger than Because that, right? it's very process-oriented. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I would say, you know, even with three or four yes, people, it's, it's like, you know, you still— It's almost ideal. Yeah. Wow. Requirements, but, yeah, mm-hmm. six to eight is the max. Are there always two facilitators or— Yes. Tip? Yes. Angela Kerala and Brian Jin are licensed clinical social workers. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. 